This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my entire collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 74th episode of The Quarterbin, we're looking at Lois Lane, The Ravens, and Tomorrow Woman from the Girl Frenzy event from DC Comics, cover dated June 1998. But first, a little feedback. And we start with a note from Tom Panarese of Pop Culture Affidavit and In Country. I'm woefully behind in my Quarterbin podcast listening and just finished episode 68, where you covered the Showcase 94 issue with Man Bat, Black Condor, and Starfire. I actually own this issue, which hasn't happened very often, and that meant I could read along with it. And you know, that is one of the fun aspects of listening to comic book podcasts, that when I get a chance to do that, it is a treat. Now, Tom is a huge Titans fan, And he had this issue specifically because of the Starfire story. I did not buy it off the stands in 94 because I don't think I realized that Corey's storyline continued to that title at the time. In fact, I remember buying it for incredibly cheap at a going-out-of-business sale that Jeppy's Comics World was having back in 2001 or 2002. The Starfire story is not that vital to Titan's continuity of the time, although it fills in some holes when it comes to figuring out what happened to Corey after New Titans 114, a.k.a. Stella's favorite Titans comic ever, because that's the one where Dick and Corey finally break up for good. And Stella likes it, because that means that that red-headed troublemaker Babs Gordon can just sweep in and steal nice little Richard Grayson away from Corey. Anyway, it was a real treat to hear you talk about this issue, and I'm enjoying marathoning the show. All the best, Tom. Now, I am working on a summer travel plan that will include meeting with Tom and Stella. So I called Tom out on getting caught up simply because he'd be embarrassed if he wasn't caught up by the time we met, and he admitted it. And yes, I'm feeling a little pressure to catch up. Thankfully, most of your shows are under an hour, unlike Stella, who can't seem to get anything under three hours lately. Yes, we do attempt to make the Quarterbin podcast binge-listenable in a reasonable amount of time. Jason Trenner also wrote in on some episodes from the recent past. Greetings, Professor. Loving the show as always. The Doom 2099 issues were a lot of fun, and I look forward to more coverage of that series. The Sherlock Holmes comic was also fun as an updated reimagining of The Great Detective. As for Dial H for Hero, man, that was weird to listen to because I know the fates of those two dialing heroes, and it's not exactly good. Both they and the original Dial H user had rough times after using the dial. Let's just say falling into comic book obscurity would be a great way to avoid their tragic fate. Still, It was a great issue of Adventure Comics, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Thank you, Jason. Always appreciate your feedback. Blogger Michael Carlyle wrote in for, I believe, the first time. He and I have similar 
tastes in terms of what we cover. I highly recommend his blog, The Crap Box of Cthulhu. Crapboxofcthulhu.blogspot.com. He blogs about the types of books I podcast about. Cheap books. We are kindred spirits. He wrote in about Doom 2099 coverage from back in episode 69. Ah, 2099. The failed experiment created when Marvel thought what readers really want is stories of a dystopian future with superheroes. The same superheroes, only a little different. It's like someone shoved the Marvel Universe into a blender, along with a copy of William Gibson's novel Neuromancer. I think it jumped the shark when the Fantastic Four 2099 title started. I haven't reviewed any that have made it into the crap box. I should get right on that. Yes, Michael, you should. But hands off Doom! Punisher 2099, Ghost Rider 2099, those are fine for you. And everyone knows that Ravager deserves the crap box treatment. But you keep your grubby mitts off the glorious leader of Latveria, all right, buddy? On episode 72, where we did Birds of Prey, I got this anonymous email. Dear Professor Cheapskate, what a wonderful episode. I think this is your best guest yet, and you should consider merging your show with hers. Think of the possibilities. I don't suggest ever having the shag on, however. All he does is promote his own things. Here's a question. If you're buying a 25-cent comic, and tax brings it up to above 25 cents, do you still buy it? Have you been lying to your listeners all these years? We deserve to know! Friendly regards, Anonymous. Now that was weird because the email address that that was sent from was batgirlstella at batgirl.oracle.com. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I answered Anonymous thanking her, or him, for writing in in support of Stella. She needs that ego boost every now and then. And on to the question of taxes. That is a great point. And this wise listener is absolutely right. So I will soon be rebranding the show as the slightly under 27 cents per issue tax included podcast or TSU 27 CPI TIP for short. Look for that on iTunes someday. Now let's move on to last episode on free comic book day. Everyone's favorite day. I wanted to make sure I gave Kyle Benning a shout-out here on his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. He also did a full free comic book day episode, so make sure to check that out for more free comic goodness. Also, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog deserves recognition because when I put out the preview post with a picture of a lot of the free comic book day books... He correctly picked the three books from that picture that would interest me, and he also predicted that I would like them all. And he was right on all of those counts. I replied to him how freaky it was, uncanny that he was so accurate. His reply to that, I can make a claim that hopefully your finance students can also make. I've been paying attention. So that earned an A for Clinton and the official designation of Quarterbin Student of the Month. And we got this from longtime listener Jason Marcinet. Hello, Professor Allen. I listened to your episode about your free comic book day experience. I always enjoy hearing about others' experiences with this event. I'm also always fascinated by which of the free comics they are interested in. 
Sounds like your FCBD experience was a success. Mine was as well. I went to five stores and picked up 15 free comics. However, two I gave to other people, and the other was a duplicate. Some stores in my town let you pick your comics, and others give you a bag with pre-selected items, thus the duplicate. Of the ones you read, the only one I also read was Rom. I was totally unfamiliar with the character. However, I figured I'd check it out. Come to find out, I know a lot of Rom fans. There are a lot of Rom fans. They tend to be of, let's just say, my general vintage, or possess my amount of life experience, shall we say? It was an entertaining read, but didn't compel me enough to seek out this new series. And two books I had my sights on were Marvel's Civil War II and Captain America, and I was able to pick both up. I read the issues and enjoyed them quite a bit, even though they were primarily teasers for what is to come. I took my nephew back to one of the stores in the afternoon. By that time, most of the books were picked over, so there wasn't much for him to choose from. However, he's only two and a half, so he didn't fully grasp the full awesomeness of the day. But I think he had a good time. He even looked at his comics in the car on the way home. But I think he enjoyed the bounce house at the store even more. Yeah, Jason, no bouncing houses at any of the stores I went to. He concludes, As far as sales, I picked up some $1 books, mostly 90s Spider-Man titles. One store had Marvel Essentials for 5 bucks each, which is a pretty good deal. So I grabbed Amazing Spider-Man Volume 10 and Punisher Volume 2. Keep up the excellent work. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate those kind words. Appreciate the feedback. I also wanted to thank Ed Moore, Clinton Robinson, Noel Thingval, Joe Crawford, and the Sutherlands for being especially faithful sharers and rebloggers of the Quarterbin episodes on social media. All right, well, let's get a start here talking about the main event for this episode. We're looking at a trio of issues from the Girl Frenzy event. Oops, it has an exclamation point. Girl Frenzy event. Girl Frenzy was a fifth-week event that DC Comics did for their books with a June 1998 cover date. A total of seven books were produced focusing on lead female characters from the DCU. Each issue was tangentially connected to sort of a parent title, but they were otherwise unrelated to one another. Overall, the event was comprised of Batgirl, obviously related to Batman, and The Mist from Starman. Those two I picked up and read recently. I paid an entire dollar for each of those comics. My discussion of those books will be on the next Comics Reading Journal. The two I've not tracked down are Secret from Young Justice and Donna Troy of Wonder Woman, leaving these three books that I picked up for one shiny quarter each. The Ravens, Birds of Prey, Tomorrow Woman, The JLA, and Lois Lane, Superman. Looking back almost two decades later, you can see a definite dark side to this event. Look, we know we don't normally cover female heroes, but we'll do it just this one, so get off our backs, okay? And that may seem a bit iffy in these more sensitive days, but it did give these seven characters or teams a chance to break through the glass ceiling, and there is something positive to be said for that. Well, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll take a quick look at these three books and their leading ladies. 
Lois Lane, The Ravens, and Tomorrow Woman. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back. The Girl Frenzy books had a consistent trade dress, and the covers were all done by Carl Story and Leonard Kirk. A solid color background with nothing but a shot of the title character or characters. And this really pulls the books together in a, in a really distinctive manner. Our first issue is Lois Lane, or technically Superman Lois Lane. All of the Girl Frenzy books were tied into existing titles, and I, I think the theory was to be able to push any new readers they got into existing books with the same or similar characters. At the end of each issue, as a matter of fact, lists all of the lead characters and all of the Girl Frenzy books with a notation of where they can be found. For example, that page notes that Lois Lane appears regularly, quote-unquote, in Action, Superman, Superman Man of Steel, Adventures, and Man of Tomorrow. The cover color for the Lois Lane book is a pinkish-purplish, with Lois in a skin-tight, sort of spy-type of suit, holding cameras instead of weapons. So it's a combo of two of the uses of Lois Lane in the past. She's part superstar journalist and part action star. And spoilers, in the first few pages of the story, she's also literally Superman's girlfriend. So you get all of the iterations of Lois Lane in one book. So... Let's get to the story, which was written by Barbara Kiesel, with art by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti, which means that the art is good and Lois looks great. The story starts way up north toward the Arctic in Manitoba. Lois is having trouble checking into her hotel room as the desk clerk is pretty sure she's Lucy Lawless. The clerk finally gives her the key, promising that her secret is safe. Thanks, but I'm a reporter, not a warrior princess. 
Shortly after settling into her new digs, the Man of Steel flies in through her open window. They smooch and flirt for a few pages, but he flies off. Not before Lois tells him not to worry. This isn't a dangerous story. You don't have to fret. The not-so-dangerous story that she's covering is about missing kids. The locals are convinced it's not the bears, like the government says, but is more likely the scientists out on the ice station. Lois meets Lilybeth, who runs an eco-tour operation, and her Davy is among the missing. Those guys at the ice station are nothing like the other scientists that she takes on tour. Lois gets into the mysterious polar lab, and she meets Dr. Bruin. Because Bruin is another word for bear. And he's creating a computer model of bear behavior. Because he's Dr. Bruin. He wants man and ursine to live together without fear. Lois recognizes Bruin, but wonders who that man from Nairobi is that's with him, and why he'd be interested in polar bears. And why he'd be interested in polar bears. Finding nothing, she leaves the building. Or does she? Lois gets in the spy suit from the cover, which is actually a diving suit. She sneaks back in through the water and learns that what's going on there is some weird something or another with polar bear genetics. Maybe they're cloning the bears? She makes her way through a few more doors and finds the missing kids. She also finds Sarge Steele, who she was going to meet earlier in the issue, an appointment he did not keep. Lois hits the emergency release, and she and Sarge Steele come up with a plan to escape. That mostly involves Sarge pulling a few wires and seeing what happens. But they're caught, and Lois is going to be disappeared in the Arctic chill. But Lilybeth and the local law enforcement intercept the bad guys, and from inside the lab, the polar bears are set free. The bad guys are taken care of, and Sarge Steele runs out of the now-exploding lab station, and they escape with their lives. We learn that all of the kids are accounted for, and that the lab will be fully investigated shortly. There's a final panel that I imagine ties into a larger storyline in the Superman books, but I'll skip that. So as my dear friend, Trentus Magnus, would ask, what did I think of this? Well, no surprise, the art is really good, and Lois did indeed look great. I think that if the intent was to show Lois at her absolute best that she can handle being the lead in a story, that a story with her name as the lead does not have to be full of Silver Age cliches. We did get Lois Lane action hero. Lois Lane, superstar journalist, and as I said, Lois Lane, Superman's girlfriend. What else could you want? I liked Sarge Steele's role in this story. I haven't run into him much during my reading. He was one of the Charlton characters that came over to DC, and he had quite a number of appearances in the 90s all over the DCU. Checkmate and Suicide Squad, Deathstroke, The Power of Shazam, books like that. The underlying storyline here is actually similar to what, spoilers, is going on in the most recent season of Gotham. Here, we have the scientists doing genetic manipulation of animals, with the goal, we learn, of then injecting that adjusted, manipulated DNA into the missing kids to turn them into super vicious supervillains or some such villainous plot. So it was a modern story told in a modern way about a modern woman. So I'd call this one a success. 
the second issue features a character I was a lot less familiar with than I was with Lois Lane. This is JLA Tomorrow Woman. From what I can tell, this is Tomorrow Woman's second appearance ever. She was in JLA number 5 about a year before. That was a, a tryout issue, a membership drive issue. She was a creation of Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. And in-universe, she was also a creation of two of DC's big bad professors, Ivo and T.O. Morrow. The cover color for the Lois Lane book is more of a straight-on purplish with Tomorrow Woman in a green-caped costume. We see half of Tomorrow Woman's body in you know traditional form, and half of it is portrayed as computer circuitry. And her skin tone, the blue circuits, the green costume, the purple background, it all really works. Again, the trade dress and cover design is such that you get an idea for who the character is and what she's about. The one fist we see of hers is clenched, and her expression and pose tell me she's ready to throw down. The story, Tomorrow Never Knows, was written by Tom Pyre, with art by Yannick Paquette and Mark Lipka. We start with the birth of the Miracle Babies, an event from 10 years ago. It was caused by radiation that emanated from an alien probe sent by an interstellar empire called the Soul Jurisdiction. One of the results of this was the unprecedented absence of any reported birth defects worldwide for the ensuing nine months, until 10 days ago, when these now 10-year-olds started getting violent. And we mean dangerously violent. Tomorrow Woman and her JLA teammates are defeating more conspicuous and, and supervillainy threats. And every time a teammate compliments her on her good work, she feels guilty. And we get a flashback to Ivo and Moro gloating about how much their creation is conning the JLA into trusting her. From skeleton to the peach fuzz on her arms, if we hadn't made her so convincingly human... She would never have gotten near our old enemies. Meanwhile, in Florida, because it's Florida, of course it's Florida, a sole jurisdiction warrior named Taint has arrived to judge if their process of creating young warriors is working. On the satellite, Tomorrow Woman and Martian Manhunter compare their telepathy skills, and hers are stronger. She feels the anger of the Miracle Children, she discovers that she is able to remove the anger, and along with Martian Manhunter, they can actually make some progress cleansing the kids' brains. She visits Ivo and Moro, expressing confusion with her mixed programming and duties. They tell her to continue being a hero until they tell her otherwise, and she does just that. Combining her powers with other JLA members, she is able to home in on the minds of every 10-year-old on the planet. She blasts the rod away in an explosion of harmony. But her two creators are not happy. They consider just junking her, but they decide not to. Ivo and Moro realize that now that the world loves her, their plan for her eventual betrayal, her eventual turn, may have actually strengthened the end. So, to ask the Trennis Magnus question, what did I think of this? I thought it was a pretty solid one-off. And the fact that there were enough characters that I did know as side characters, as backup characters, helped make the story 
with a lead character that I did not know, accessible and enjoyable. And actually, I was thinking as I was reading this that I've been reading a lot of Golden Age sci-fi recently, and that there's a lot in this story that harkens back to tales from that era. We've got a human-robot hybrid as our hero. We've got a secret alien invasion targeting children. And not just one mad scientist, but we have two mad scientists working together at the fringes of what is scientifically appropriate. And it's a complete story, beginning, middle, and end, told in 22 pages with just a little bit of a tease for possibly continuing the story, a nod to the soap opera nature of comic books. The upshot in terms of the story was that I picked up this issue uncertain. And I put it down, what, 10, 15 minutes later, satisfied. And there's nothing wrong with that. I thought the art in this one was okay. Not great, just just okay. There's a, a jam panel on the satellite, and Wonder Woman looks particularly wonky on that page. But she's holding a Wonder Woman coffee mug, and that kind of makes up for everything else in the art. By the way, the note at the end of this one says that Tomorrow Woman's former teammates carry on her legacy in JLA. I do not know what the end of her story was, if the seeds that were planted here bore fruit later, but if any of you know, shoot me a line. I'm curious. The third and final issue for this episode features a set of characters again that I was not familiar with. This is Birds of Prey, The Ravens about a group of female mercenaries led by Cheshire. This is their first appearance. The cover color is a nice bright scarlet, and for a cover with as many characters as this one has, it still manages to maintain the consistent amount of white space on the covers. I mean, it's it's not white, it's whatever. Solid cover that the color is using. Unused space. But you know what I mean. I like this color. Again, I just think the trade dress itself is, is pretty attention-getting. The story, Simon Says Armageddon, was written by the excellent Chuck Dixon, with art by Nelson DeCastro and Drew Garassi. The story starts with our team of four title characters, the Ravens, in a standoff with a military or maybe paramilitary-type dude with a dangerous-looking device in his hand, with an even more ominous-looking big red button on that device. We flash back to how we got here with brief intros from Cheshire of our other ladies, Vicious, Termina, and the awesomely named sharpshooter Pistolera, who used to be the less awesomely named Gun Bunny. They land on a small atoll and rock climb up, only to find themselves facing S-I-M-O-N, Simon, an international crime cartel. They quiz Cheshire on, on why they're there, but they accepted her payment, so she's not answering. They make it to a secret lab, and Termina is the first one to attack. For her, their mission is personal. Her touch is deadly, the result of a terminal disease that Simon infected her with when she was a test subject for them. The other three girls attack, and we end up back at the first page with the paramilitary guy holding the what turns out to be a neutron generator device, sort of a souped-up, super-powered radiation bomb of some kind. Termina steps forward and kills him with her touch. 
but she doesn't destroy the weapon. She actually wants to activate the device because the ensuing neutron radiation wave stuff may cure her disease. The other three fight their way out of there, make it to a helicopter, and fly away to safety. The end. So, as my podcasting colleague Trennis Magnus likes to ask, what did I think of this? It was written by Chuck Dixon. That should tell you what I thought about it. It was another solid one-off, telling another complete story, albeit, I'll be honest, a pretty light story. But this was mostly about character, not plot. It was about the four ladies working together, their banter, their interactions. And then that opportunity to have Termina become hero and then turn right at the end. So that twist is what we were building to. This one had sort of a Suicide Squad feel, having a team of people with a questionable character. But I liked that twist at the end. I thought that Dixon executed that real well. That someone on the team who had a personal interest in the mission, but not in having the mission succeed in actually activating the super weapon. So that made the story just feel different enough from sort of what you'd expect in a standard one-off story that I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but Pistolera is a great name for a sharpshooter character. There's also a joke at the end of the issue where the Ravens debate actually what S-I-M-O-N stands for because nobody actually knows. So we ended with a laugh, and that's always a good thing. There was a half-page in this issue that connected it to the ongoing Birds of Prey continuity. You had Oracle tell Black Canary that an abnormally high radiation reading has been detected off a tiny little atoll, and that it's something they need to look into at some point. And then in that summary page at the end of the issue, we're told that the Ravens square off with Black Canary and Oracle in the Birds of Prey title. Again, I don't know when that happened. Stella, tell me when that happened. But I gave Chuck Tixon credit for turning this one-off event into an opportunity to produce sort of a backdoor pilot for this new group, this all-female mercenary team. The verdict on Girl Frenzy, or at least the 42% of the event that this episode represents. You know, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. An event promoting female characters, perhaps to bring in female readers. I don't know, there's a chance that that could go poorly. That it could be condescending, or be silly, or be stereotypical, or just... There are a number of ways, small or large that an event like this could have failed. But these three issues, now I'll go ahead and add the other two that I read, The Mist and Batgirl. And overall, all of those books were just pretty fun. So if you find these for cheap, pick them up. These three were all legitimate quarter bin deals. That wraps up my coverage of Girl Frenzy! Bringing episode 74 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 75, we'll be looking at Marvel 2-in-1 number 57, featuring The Thing and Wondar, cover dated November 1979. And the chances are very high that on that episode, I'll be joined by returning guest Paul Spataro. 
If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast or of your experiences with the Girl Frenzy event, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.